Chapter 2 of Strange Pages from Family Papers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Strange Pages from Family Papers by T. F. Thistleton Dyer Chapter 2 The Screaming Skull Look on its broken arch, its ruined wall, its chambers desolate, its portals foul. Yes, this was once ambition's airy hall, the dome of thought, the palace of the soul. Byron There are told of certain houses, in different parts of the country, many weird skull stories, the popular idea being that if any profane hand should be bold enough to remove or in any way tamper with such gruesome relics of the dead, misfortune will inevitably overtake the family. Hence, for years past, there have been carefully preserved in some of our country homes numerous skulls, all kinds of romantic traditions accounting for their present isolated and unburied condition. An old farmstead known as Bettiscombe, near Bridport, Dorsetshire, has long been famous for its so-called screaming skull, generally supposed to be that of a negro servant, who declared before his death that his spirit would not rest until his body was buried in his native land. But, contrary to his dying wish, he was interred in the churchyard of Bettiscombe, and hence the trouble which this skull has ever since occasioned. In the August of 1883, Dr. Richard Garnet, his daughter, and a friend, while staying in the neighbourhood, determined to pay this eccentric skull a visit, the result of which is thus amusingly told by Miss Garnet. One fine afternoon, a party of three adventurous spirits started off, hoping to discover the skull and investigate its history. This much we knew, that the skull would only scream when it was buried, and so we hoped to get leave to inter it in the churchyard. The village of Bettiscombe was at length reached, and we found our way to the old farmhouse which stood at the end of the village by itself. It had evidently been a manor-house, and a very handsome one too. We were admitted into a fine paved hall, and attempted to break the ice by asking for milk. We then endeavoured to draw the good woman of the house into conversation by admiring the place, and asking, in a guarded manner, respecting the famous skull. On this subject she was most reserved, she had only lately had the farmhouse, and had been obliged to take possession of the skull also. But she did not wish us to suppose that she knew much about it. It was a veritable skeleton in the closet to her. After exercising great diplomacy, we persuaded her to allow us a sight of it. We tramped up the fine old staircase till we reached the top of the house, when, opening a cupboard door, she showed us a steep, winding staircase, leading to the roof, and from one of the steps the skull sat grinning at us. We took it in our hands and examined it carefully. It was very old and weather-beaten, and certainly human. The lower jaw was missing, the forehead very low and badly proportioned. One of our party, who was a medical student, examined it long and gravely, and then, after first telling the good woman that he was a doctor, pronounced it to be, in his opinion, the skull of a negro. After this oracular utterance, she resolved to make a clean breast of all she knew, 
which, however, did not amount to much. The skull, we were informed, was that of a negro servant, who had lived in the service of a Roman Catholic priest. Some difference arose between them, but whether the priest murdered the servant in order to conceal some crimes known to the negro, or whether the negro, in a fit of passion, killed his master, did not clearly appear. However, the negro had declared before his death that his spirit would not rest until his body was taken to his native land and buried there. This was not done, he being buried in the churchyard of Betiscombe. Then the haunting began. Fearful screams proceeded from the grave. The doors and windows of the house rattled and creaked. Strange sounds were heard all over the house. In short, there was no rest for the inmates until the body was dug up. At different periods attempts were made to bury the body, but similar disturbances always reoccurred. In process of time the skeleton disappeared, all save the skull, and its reputation as the screaming skull remains unimpaired. In a farmhouse in Sussex are preserved two skulls from Hastings Priory, about which many gruesome stories are current in the neighbourhood. One of these skulls, it appears, has been in the house many years. The other was placed there by a former tenant of the farm. It is the prevalent impression in the locality that if by any chance the former skull were to be removed, the cattle in the farm would die, and unearthly sounds be heard in and about the house at night-time. According to a local tradition, the skull belonged to a man who murdered the owner of the house, and marks of blood are pointed out on the floor of the adjoining room, where the murder is said to have been committed, and which no washing will remove. But on more than one occasion the skull has been taken away without any ill effects, and one year was placed by a profane hand in a branch of a neighbouring tree, where it remained a whole summer, during which time a bird's nest was constructed within it, and a young brood successfully reared. And yet the old superstition still survives, and the prejudice against tampering with this peculiar skull has in no way diminished. There are the remains of a skull in three parts at Tunstead, a farmhouse about a mile and a half from Chapel in Le Frith, which, although popularly known by the male cognomen Dicky, has always been said to be that of a woman. How long it has been located in its present home is not known, but tradition tells how one of two co-heiresses residing here was murdered, who solemnly affirmed that her bones should remain in the place for ever. In days past this skull has been guilty of all sorts of eccentric pranks, many of which are still told by the credulous peasantry with respectful awe. It is added, also, that if Dicky should accidentally be removed, everything in the farm will go wrong. The cows will be dry and barren, the sheep have the rot, and horses fall down, breaking their knees and otherwise injuring themselves. The story goes, too, that when the London and North Western Railway to Manchester was being made, the foundations of a bridge gave way in the yielding sands and bog, and after several attempts to build the bridge had failed, it was found necessary to divert the highway and pass it under the railway on higher ground. These engineering failures were attributed to the malevolent influence of Dickey, but as soon as the road was diverted it was bridged successfully, because no longer in Dickey's territory. 
A similar superstition attaches to a skull kept in a farmhouse at Chilton Cantalo in Somersetshire. From the date on the tombstone of the former owner of the skull, 1670, it has been conjectured that he came to the retired village in which he was buried, after taking an active part, on the Republican side, in the Civil War, and that, seeing the way in which the bodies of some of them who had acted with him were treated after the Restoration, he wished to provide against this in his own case. But whatever the previous history of this curious skull, it has at times caused a great deal of trouble, resenting any proposal to consign it to the earth, for buried it will not be, no matter how many attempts are made to do so. Strange to say, most of this class of skulls behave in the same extraordinary fashion. At a short distance from Turton Tower, one of the most interesting structures in the neighbourhood of Bolton, is a farmhouse locally designated Timberbottom, or the Skull House, so called from the circumstance that two skulls are, or were, kept there, one of which was much decayed, whereas the other appeared to have been cut through by a blow from some sharp instrument. These skulls, it is said, have been buried many times in the graveyard at Bradshaw Chapel, but they have always had to be exhumed, and brought back to the farmhouse. On one occasion they were thrown into the adjacent river, but to no purpose, for they had to be fished up and restored to their old quarters, before the ghosts of their owners could once more rest in peace. A popular cause assigned for this strange behaviour on the part of certain skulls is that their owners met with a violent death, and that the avenging spirit in this manner annoys the living, reminding us of Macbeth's words. Blood hath been shed ere now, in the olden time, ere human statute purged the gentle wheel. Aye, and since too murders have been performed, too terrible for the ear. The times have been that when the brains were out the man would die, and there an end. But now they rise again, with twenty mortal murders on their crowns, and push us from our stalls. This is more strange than such a murder is. Hence a romantic and tragic story is told of two skulls, which have long haunted an old house near Ambleside. It appears that a small piece of ground, known as Calgrath, was owned by a humble farmer named Craster Cook and his wife Dorothy. But their little inheritance was covered by a wealthy magistrate, Miles Philipson, who, unable to induce them to part with it, swore he'd have that ground, be they live or dead. As time wore on, however, he appeared more gracious to Craster and Dorothy, and actually invited them to a great Christmas banquet given to the neighbours. It was a dear feast for them, for Miles Philipson pretended they had stolen a silver cup, and sure enough it was found in Craster's house. A plant, of course. Such an offence was then capital, and, as Philipson was the magistrate, Craster and Dorothy were sentenced to death. Thereupon Dorothy arose in the courtroom, and addressed Philipson in words that rang through the building, and impressed all for their awful earnestness. Guard thyself, Miles Philipson. Thou thinkest thou hast managed grandly, but that tiny lump of land is the dearest a Philipson has ever bought or stolen, for you will never prosper, neither your breed. Whatever scheme you undertake will wither in your hand. The side you take will always lose, 
The time shall come when no Philipson shall own an inch of land, and while Calgarth walls shall stand, we'll haunt it night and day. Never will ye be rid of us. Henceforth the Philipsons had for their guests two skulls. They were found at Christmas at the head of a staircase. They were buried in a distant region, but they turned up in the old house again. Again and again were the two skulls burned. They were brazed to dust and cast to the winds, and for several years they were cast in the lake, but the Philipsons could never get rid of them. In the meantime Dorothy's weird went steadily on to its fulfilment, until the family sank into poverty, and at length disappeared. As a more rational explanation of the matter, it is told by some local historians that there formerly lived in the house a famous doctoress, who had two skeletons by her for the usual purposes of her profession, and these skulls, happening to meet with better preservation than the rest of the bones, they were accidentally honoured with this singular tradition. Wardley Hall, Lancashire, has its skull, which is supposed to be the witness of some tragedy committed in the past, and to have belonged to Roger Downs, the last male representative of his family, and who was one of the most abandoned courtiers of Charles the Second. Roby, in one of his traditions, entitled The Skull House, has represented him as rushing forth, hot from the stews, drawing his sword as he staggered along, and swearing that he would kill the first man he met. Terrible to say, that fearful oath was fulfilled, for his victim was a poor tailor, whom he ran through with his weapon and killed on the spot. He was apprehended for the crime, but his interest at court quickly procured him a free pardon, and he soon continued his reckless course. But one evening, as his sister and cousin Eleanor were chatting together at Wardley, the carrier from Manchester brought a wooden box, which had come all the way from London by Antony's wagon. Suspecting that there was something mysterious connected with this package, for the direction was a quaint crabbed hand, she opened it in secret, when, to her amazement and horror, this writing attracted her notice. Thy brother has at length paid the forfeit of his crimes. The wages of sin is death and his head is before thee. Heaven hath avenged the innocent blood he hath shed. Last night, in the lusty vigour of a drunken debauch, passing over London Bridge, he encounters another brawl, wherein, having run at the watchman with his rapier, one blow of the bill which they carried severed thy brother's head from his trunk. The latter was cast over the parapet into the river. The head only remained, which an eye-witness if not a friend, hath sent to thee. His sister tried at first to keep the story of her brother's death a secret, and hid with all speed this ghastly memorial forever, as she hoped, from the gaze and knowledge of the world. It was her desire to conceal this foul stain upon the family name, but the grave gives back its dead, the charnel gapes, the ghastly head hath burst its cold tabernacle and risen from the dust. No human power could drive it away. It hath been torn in pieces, burnt and otherwise destroyed, but even on the subsequent day it is seen filling its wanted place. Yet it was always observed that sore vengeance lighted on its persecutors. 
One who hacked it in pieces was seized with such horrible torments in his limbs that it seemed as though he might be undergoing the same process. Sometimes, if only displaced, a fearful storm would arise, so loud and terrible that the very elements themselves seemed to become the ministers of its wrath. Nor will this eccentric piece of mortality allow the little aperture in which it rests to be walled up, for it remains there still, whitened and bleached by the weather, looking forth from those rayless sockets upon the scenes which, when living, they had once beheld. Towards the close of the last century, Thomas Barrett, the Manchester antiquary, visited this skull. This surprising piece of household furniture, as he calls it, and adds that one of us who was last in company with it removed it from its place into a dark part of the room, and there left it, and returned home. But on the following night a violent storm arose in the neighbourhood, causing an immense deal of damage, trees being blown down and roofs unthatched, and the cause, as it was supposed, being ascertained, the skull was replaced, when these terrific disturbances ceased. And yet, as Thomas Barrett sensibly remarks, all this might have happened had the skull never been removed, but withal it keeps alive the credibility of the tradition. Formerly two keys were provided for this place of a skull, one being kept by the tenant of the hall, and the other by the Countess of Ellesmere, the owner of the property. The Countess occasionally accompanied visitors from the neighbouring Worsley Hall, and herself unlocked the door, and revealed to her friends the grinning skull of Wardley Hall. Another romantic story is associated with Burton Agnes Hall, between Bridlington and Driffield, Yorkshire, which is haunted by the spirit of a lady, a co-heiress of the estate, who is popularly known as Old Nance. The skull of this lady is carefully preserved in the hall, and so long as it is left undisturbed, all goes well. But whenever any attempt is made to remove it, the most unearthly noises are heard in the house, and last until it is restored. According to a local tradition, many years ago the three co-heiresses of the estate of Burton Agnes were possessed of considerable wealth, and finding the ancient mansion in which they resided not in harmony with their ideas of what a home should be suited to their position, determined to erect a house in such a style as should eclipse all others in the neighbourhood. The most prominent organiser of the scheme was the younger sister, Anne, who could talk or think of nothing but the magnificent home about to be built, which, in due time it is said, emerged from the hands of artists and workmen, like a palace erected by the genie of the Arabian Nights, a palace encrusted throughout on walls, roof and furniture, with the most exquisite carvings, and sculptures of the most skilled masters of the age and radiant with the most glowing tints of the pencil of Peter Paul. But soon after its completion and occupation by its three co-heiresses, Anne, the enthusiast, paid an afternoon visit to the St Quentins at Harpham. On starting to return home about nightfall with her dog, she had gone no great distance when she was confronted by two ruffianly-looking beggars who asked alms. She readily gave them a few coins, and in doing so the glitter of her fingering accidentally attracted their notice, which they at once demanded should be given up to them. This she refused to do, as it had been her mother's ring, and was one which she valued above all price. 
Mother or no mother, gruffly replied one of the rogues. We mean to have it, and if you do not part with it freely, we must take it. Whereupon he seized her hand and attempted to drag off the ring. Frightened at this act of violence, Anne screamed for help, at which the other ruffian, exclaiming, Stop that noise! struck her a blow, and she fell senseless to the earth. But her screams had attracted attention, and the approach of some villagers caused the villains to make a hasty retreat, without being able to get the ring from her finger. In a dying condition, as it was supposed, Anne was carried back to Harpham Hall, where, under the care of Lady St. Quentin, she made sufficient recovery to be removed the following day to her own home. The brutal treatment she had received from the highwaymen, however, had done its fatal work, and after a few days, during which she was alternately sensible and delirious, she succumbed to the effects. Her one thought, previous to death, was her devotion to her home, which had latterly been the ruling passion of her life, and bidding her sisters farewell, she addressed them thus. Sisters, never shall I sleep peacefully in my grave in the churchyard, unless I, or a part of me at least, remain here in our beautiful home as long as it lasts. Promise me this, dear sisters, that when I am dead my head shall be taken from my body and preserved within these walls. Here let it forever remain, and on no account be removed. And understand and make it known to those who in future shall become possessors of the house, that if they disobey this, my last injunction, my spirit shall, if so able and so permitted, make such a disturbance within its walls as to render it uninhabitable for others so long as my head is divorced from its home. Her sisters promised to accede to her dying request, but failed to do so, and her body was laid entire under the pavement of the church. Within a few days, Burton Agnes Hall was disturbed by the most alarming noises, and no servant could be induced to remain in the house. In this dilemma, the two sisters remembered that they had not carried out Anne's last wish, and, at the suggestion of the clergyman, the coffin was opened, when a strange sight was seen. The body lay without any marks of corruption or decay, but the head was disengaged from the trunk, and appeared to be rapidly assuming the semblance of a fleshless skull. This was reported to the two sisters, and on the vicar's advice the skull of Anne was taken to Burton Agnes Hall, where, so long as it remained undisturbed, no ghostly noises were heard. It may be added that numerous attempts have, from time to time, been made to rid the hall of this skull, but without success. Many other similar skulls are still existing in various places, and, in addition to their antiquarian interest, have attracted the sightseer, connected as they mostly are with tales of legendary romance. An amusing anecdote of a skull is told by the late Mr. Wirt Sykes. It seems that on a certain day some men were drinking at an inn, when one of them, to show his courage and want of superstition, affirmed that he was afraid of no ghosts, and dared to go to the church and fetch a skull. This he did, and after an hour or so of merry-making over the skull, he carried it back to where he had found it. But as he was leaving the church, suddenly a tremendous blast like a whirlwind seized him, and so mauled him that he ever after maintained that nothing should induce him to do such a thing again. The man was still more convinced that the ghost of the original owner of the skull had been after him, 
when his wife informed him that the cane which hung in his room had been beating against the wall in a dreadful manner. Byron had his skull romance at Newstead, but in this case the skull was more orderly, and not given to those unpleasant pranks of which other skulls have seemingly been guilty. Whilst living at Newstead, a skull was one day found of large dimensions and peculiar whiteness. Concluding that it belonged to some friar who had been domesticated at Newstead, prior to the confiscation of the monasteries by Henry VIII, Byron determined to convert it into a drinking vessel, and for this purpose dispatched it to London, where it was elegantly mounted. On its return to Newstead, he instituted a new order at the Abbey, constituting himself Grand Master, or Abbot, of the Skull. The members, twelve in number, were provided with black gowns, that of Byron as head of the fraternity being distinguished from the rest. A chapter was held at certain times when the Skull drinking goblet was filled with claret, and handed about amongst the gods of this consistory, while many a grim joke was cracked at the expense of this relic of the dead. The following lines were inscribed upon it by Byron. Start not, nor deem my spirit fled. In me behold the only skull from which, unlike a living head, whatever flows is never dull. I lived, I loved, I quaffed like thee. I died. Let earth my bones resign. Fill up, thou canst not injure me. The worm hath fouler lips than mine. Where once my wit perchance hath shone, In aid of others let me shine, And when, alas, our brains are gone, What nobler substitute than wine? Quaff while thou canst. Another race, when thou and thine like me are sped, May rescue thee from earth's embrace, And rhyme and revel with the dead. Why not, since through life's little day Our heads such sad effects produce, Redeemed from worms and wasting clay, this chance is theirs to be of use. The skull, it is said, is buried beneath the floor of the chapel at Newstead Abbey. End of chapter 2